in my accident. So please be kind and enjoy some of my European sexy accents and share with some weird karma and um, the way. We all met during the purgatory case guide last year and created our own uh, investigative team. We also co-created the winning cards against purgatory, which uh, just celebrated its first anniversary. So, happy birthday! A special shout-out to our dear Vicky Belf, who is the mastermind of Cards Against Purgatory. And we managed all things uh, related to the game. You know, so I've seen the interactive game launch and uh, what just ended Operation Megatron, which was set in the Vanilla Earth universe and that led us to the Gospel Triangle. You can still check it out uh, if you want. Sorry, I digress, but let's go back to the podcast. It's not the usual podcast. We, we won't cover every episode of the show. We're going to focus on um, the mysteries of uh, One Man Earth. We probably won't do a, a weekly podcast, but we will record a few episodes to explain and uh, dissect our favorite theories about uh, really everything uh, One Man Earth. In this first edition, Joey is going to recap all we know about So let's talk about Bulsha. We will start with a few basics, things we know from the series, but maybe you haven't noticed them or forgot about them. It happens to all of us. So Bulsha is actually also known as the demon Cludi, who was the sheriff in Purgatory during White Earp's times. White heard about him and he came to Purgatory and during that time he at some point killed Bulsha's sons, 
which he was pretty mad about. And Bosia wanted um, revenge for killing his sons, but also Wyatt wanted to ban Bosia from purgatory. So what happened kind of at the same time is that um, Bosia or Cludi got banned with the help of Juan Carlos and Robert Swain, who's Bobo de Rey, um, and Wyatt Earp, and they created like the thrills to bind him. White Earp also tried to kill Bosha, but Bosha cursed White Earp during that whole process. And this is the curse we heard about in season one, which is the descendants of White Earp have to kill his um, outlaws or kills when they turn 27. So the outlaws come back as revenants. What we also learn about Bosha, especially in the episode um, where it's about the past of the curse, so the like vision quest episode in season two, we learned that Bosha had at least three wives. So we know about um, the two widows who get captured during um, the binding of Bosha. So it's like the widow Mercedes and widow Beth, they're basically not Beth and Mercedes, they pretend to be, um, but those two um, witch-like and Black Widow-like creatures are two of his wives. They get put into a crate um, for kind of a long time. And his third wife was Constance Cludy, who we know as the Stone Witch from the first season and a bit of the second season. And this is the wife he had the two demon sons with. The two demon sons um, never got fully resurrected. Um, one demon son got resurrected, but then he also gets killed by Bobo de Rey during a, a conflict between Constance Cludy and Bobo. Constance Cludy dies in season two, finally. She gets buried by Doc Holliday and Winona Earp in season one in like a salt desert because she's a witch, she can be bound by salt. Um, she's also the one who gave Doc his immortality by giving him Bocha's ring. So she kind of betrayed her own husband and then bewitched the ring to grant Doc Holiday immortality. But she also made sure he stayed at the bottom of the well for quite some time. What we learn out of the yarn texts that we had now before season three and during the season is that Bocha has a cult. We don't know that much about the cult yet. Um, we know that there are like ritual massacres or killings every seven years and they started in the 20s or at least there's record until that point. And we finally know Bocha's symbol, which is, it's hard to describe on a podcast, but I would say it's like two meshed forks with a cross in the middle. But this symbol we've seen on the seals, it was one of the few symbols me and the Wormhole Whisperers couldn't figure out because all the other symbols on the three seals are ancient Phoenician. And this seal didn't fit in and we spent like basically a whole season trying to figure out what is going on with the symbol, where does it come from. Finally, we know. Thank you. Um, this symbol also was on the crate in which the widows were trapped. We see a picture of the crate at the end of um, episode one in season two where the widows break out of the bbd basically storage compartment 
And we also see the symbol in the Bosha files and the yarn text on trees. And then we see it in the first episode of season three on one of the cult victims. So it's the symbol that has been like carved into um, their body. And then the bodies are arranged in the way that shows the symbol of Bosha. What else do we know about Bolsha? Bolsha had a powerful ring, which we already mentioned. This ring he kind of lost, so Constance stole it. We're not sure how it got actually to Constance Cludi. But then the ring went on to Doc Holliday. Um, Doc Holliday took it off to give it to Winona for safe storage after they figured out that it's Bolsha's ring and it's the last piece of the puzzle. The widows need to resurrect him. But Waverly, in the end, gives the ring to widow Beth to save Nicole. Then they resurrect Borsha. The ring goes back to Borsha. Widow Mercedes chops off Borsha's, um, I think, finger with the ring, takes it for herself, puts it on, um, becomes like a very powerful witch. She dies and we see the ring in the possession of Nicole at the end of the second season. She's not putting it on, but she's kind of taking care of it. So the next question we have is, what is Borsha doing in the Ghost River Triangle? Was he there before the barrier went up? Or maybe the barrier of the Ghost River Triangle has always been there and is kind of his prison. It's more like the question of, um, is this like a hellmouth situation We like we had it in Buffy? in Sunnydale, where there's a strong connection between the town and basically a gate to the demon world. That could be a possibility for purgatory. It's very interesting because of the name. So the question is, was it named purgatory before Borsha was actually there? Or did Borsha name it? Or was it named like after the um, devilish forces that lived there? And still something we couldn't figure out, but I think is important is, is Borsha trapped in a Ghost River Triangle? So did he come there on purpose or has he always been there? Does he have to stay there? Um, it maybe gives us an idea about the whole, the Ghost River Triangle as a sanctuary or the Ghost River Triangle as a prison kind of thing, which is not something we figured out yet. Which leads us to our first monsters of the season, the vampires that come and visit the Ghost River Triangle because they know about Borsha. The good question is, why do they know about Borsha? I mean, the vampires turn out to be mostly European. That doesn't have to mean that much, but they're kind of powerful beings, at least how we see vampires. They don't hide as monsters. They go into town, they're obvious vampires they bewitch all of their victims but they're not like the revenants who are like trying to hide and i feel are lesser demons than the vampires the vampires come for the show basically to see borsha rise so was there like a supernatural memo with the dark forces saying oh borsha's back go come watch the show really not clear then also the question is do they kind of serve Borsha? Like, how big of a deal is Borsha, actually? Because in the end, we see the main vampire being very scared of Borsha. And the vampire is actually collecting victims not only for themselves, 
but also for Borussia. So they collect the um, people who belong to the old families or the original families of Purgatory. Why would they do that? Why would they come to Purgatory specifically to do then this job for Borussia if he wasn't a very powerful dark being that even the vampires wouldn't want to cross? Which leads us to the old families. Um, so the vampires want to give the first family's members to Borussia as kind of an offering. So he kind of needs them. Maybe there's like a whole revenge plot going on because the first families didn't protect him against White Herb or maybe they sided with him. Or there could have been a deal with the devil, so to speak. So the old families could have had a contract with Borussia he maybe gave them wealth or power um, or whatever they wished for, kind of like the demon in the like hockey trophy kind of deal. But then the families um, ended up with this wealth and fortune and without Borsha. So it might be that Borsha wants revenge because the families didn't try to actually revive him. I'm still not sure if wealth or money or powers is something um, the families actually get out of this. They might also, in the end, have been trapped in the Ghost River Triangle or been forced by Borja. It's really not clear what their relationship is, but it seems important. It seems to go back to the very first days of Purgatory. Maybe the first families had to use their power and influence to lure in strangers to... Killed him for Bolcha, maybe it was kind of a blood sacrifice thing like we see later with the cult that could have been going on when um, Purgatory was founded. Another theory is that Bolcha, or at this time as Sheriff Cludy, used his time as a sheriff to kind of cultivate magical beings. At some point it was said that he married the widow's especially because there were witches. So he might have wanted to grab power, connect people to himself who were magical beings and powerful, maybe to escape the Ghost of Red Triangle, which might have been his prison. Um, he could also have like a bigger, inferior plan, like ruling Earth with demon forces or whatever, but I think they wouldn't write that in. It's more like a local Ghost River Triangle story we're seeing develop here. So what about that cult? We heard a lot about that cult in the first episode and in the yarn text, actually. So we figured out that there are these massacres and they occur every seven years since the 20s. We've seen a few pictures in the files that Nicole is holding at the end of season two. And we see on like one picture that there are a lot of victims, but they are not arranged in the way the bodies are arranged in episode one of season three. So you don't see Borussia's symbol. That might be just a coincidence or there's actually a bigger meaning behind that, like Borussia sending a signal to the BBD and to Winona Earp that he's back and that this is his doing. But the question is, in the 20s, Borja was already entombed, like, he was trapped. How could he start a cult? So maybe he left some kind of, let's say, a game plan for if something happened to him, or he had, like, a very 
close follower who knew more about magic and who knows how to bring him back or how to strengthen him because that's one of the main theories that the massacres are not just there for the killing's sake but they're actually there to strengthen Borsha through some kind of blood magic or to free him from the confines of the Ghost River Triangle through that magic. But I think he gains some kind of power out of these massacres, otherwise it would be a bit senseless. I mean, he could be a demon who just enjoys that kind of thing, but the people are not, like, tortured, they are pretty much um, not mutilated, they're intact, like, it doesn't seem like a demon who just enjoys pain or torture. But who are the people, like, who are the members of the cult and who are the victims of the massacres? That is very interesting because these could be the same. So the members of the cult sacrifice themselves every seven years and then there are new members of the cult, um, like ritual killings. But it doesn't seem likely since the victims of the massacre we've seen in episode one, season three, are mainly guests and employees of Pussy Willows. And Pussy Willows doesn't seem like a place where a lot of cultists live and wait for their time to kill themselves for their big demon Borsha. So who are the members of the cult? They might be the ones who do the killing. We see um, these like soldier guy being at the crime scene. But there's also the mentioning of weird trees in the yarn texts. And now stay with me, this might be a bit of a far-off theory, but it's interesting. So we see an interesting picture in the new um, introduction to the series. So we have this picture of a tree, but there's an eye in it. You kind of see it. And the eye kind of looks like Bosha's eye we've seen at the end of season two, where he finally wakes up. So Bosha is probably connected to the trees, which was also heavily suggested in the yarn text. What if his followers turn to trees, or it's a punishment for certain followers who to get turned to trees, like the um, Hungarian head vampire we're pretty sure was turned into a tree, the thing that was put into his mouth by Bosha's right-hand man, seemed like a tree seed, like something that would grow inside him and then he would turn into a tree. Could the trees be kind of the killers? They said the murder weapon looked like a serrated knife. They didn't find the weapon though, so the wounds looked like it. That could have been branches with thorns on them. It's a bit far out there, but maybe it turns out to be true. But what we strongly believe is that Bolcher somehow controls some of the trees or a lot of them that might be how he hides followers or how he gains power as well to trap people in trees and then kind of control the land he's actually either trapped in or just controlling. The problem is still we didn't find a murder weapon at the crime scene. It's likely that someone just took it and that someone else killed the victims so that they didn't do it themselves. Because then we would have seen like not just one murder weapon, but probably more of them. Because they also said they all died at the same time. On the other hand, this is Nicole saying that, right? Nicole's not a medical examiner. So if it seems to her that they died at the same time, it doesn't mean they had to die at the same moment, but more in like a same time frame. 
the killer could actually be like the soldier guy we've seen. But how would he do that, right? Um, how would he do that without people breaking into a panic? He could probably bewitch them like the vampires would do it. But Nedley was very specific about that the vampires weren't the killers. Um, he said they didn't do it. And I think he pretty much meant that the vampires were not the ones being in charge of the massacre. What could the soldier guy have done? Um, I think he could be a time-manipulating demon, so he could maybe stop time or restrain the movement of his victims. Doesn't have to be through time, could be through... Oh, tree wines, there we go again. He could move with incredible speed to kill all of them, right? There's a lot of um, possibilities. What is pretty clear that I think he is the one who arranged the bodies after... The people died because you see a lot of blood on the floor and um, it's not just there where people have fallen but um, there were kind of bodies dragged across the floor so the arranging was definitely done afterwards. I think he was also the one doing like the carving of Borsha's symbol in one of the victim's bodies. He seems like the messenger kind of guy because he also puts like the red handprint on the poster of the 1996 rodeo. What I keep asking myself is why Pussy Willows? Probably for the random victims because it's easy to learn in quite a lot of people with a strip club like a special night, an event, that could be quite easy. But what about revenants in there? We have a lot of revenants in the context of Pussy Willows. They work there, they probably enjoy themselves there. So did they know that Borsha was coming? Because then they would have just not go to this place. Like, what is the connection between the Revenants and Borsha? Because Winona thinks that the Revenants maybe don't know where he is, which could be, but they could also know where this, like, strong dark magical force is hiding and just avoid it. Because he's their maker. I think they're not a big fan of Borsha himself. He, like, deemed him to go back to hell and then be killed all over again. I'm not sure they're actually enjoying the whole thing. The story of the cult definitely leads us to Nicole's story. We figured out that Nicole is a survivor of the cult. There's no reason to not believe her in what she said. And the only massacre that really makes sense is the 1996 massacre because she would have been a, sh a child during that time. So in an age where the um, traumatic experience would have probably led to some kind of suppressing the memory. I mean, people can also do that later, but the whole child story might be the most plausible one. And the 1996 massacre might connect to Mama Earp, aka Michelle Gibson, so that's an interesting fact, and since I think they like that everything is connected story-wise, this is the massacre we're talking about. The question is, did she just survive in a sense of did she just hide or run away or whatever? Or was she actually saved by someone? Two people come into mind when we talk about saving little Nicole. One is Michelle Gibson or Nedley as a young deputy. I think he didn't pick Nicole just for good grades, but he picked Nicole for a reason. So he might know the connection between Nicole and the massacre or Nicole and, like, supernatural forces. 
he could also tr have tried to get Nicole back to purgatory just because he um, has been watching over her, kind of as a guardian angel. I really like the idea of Nedley taking care of this young child, but she would have probably remembered him, so maybe he was just connected to the case and kept watch at a distance, kind of. The question is, were Nicole parents just victims of the cult, or members who kind of self-sacrificed or members who got turned into trees by Borgia because they maybe wanted to save their child and gave it to Nedley or to Michelle. So that is not clear yet, but both things are definitely possible. Which leads us, of course, to Mama Earp. She's definitely connected to Borgia. This is something we figured out after Winona visited her. It's also hinted at by the weird soldier guy who um, puts his like bloody handprint on a poster of her being Rodeo Queen. But what does it mean? First of all, we know that Michelle, he is a voice that is connected to Borgia. Maybe it's even Borgia himself, because Wynonna said that the hearing voices thing started recently. And it could have started after Borgia was freed from his tomb. Um, so when he came back and then he starts to talk to her again. The question is, why does he talk to her in the first place? He could have some psychic connection to all of his ex-followers, because I think that Michelle pretty clearly was part of this cult at some point. Was she just part of the cult, or maybe was she already like becoming a wife of Borgia, which would make Waverly a daughter of Borgia, that he then wants to marry, which is a bit weird, but it's a demon, I think they don't really care about these kind of things. She could have been also the one who saved Nicole as a child. I think on the lines of a story of saying that um, Michelle wanted to leave Borgia because she figured out she was pregnant and she wanted a child to grow up somewhere that is definitely not a weird demon cult. So she tries to get away. She also takes this little child with her from the 1996 massacre because she kind of sees her and gets reminded of the child she herself is going to have. Then she hands over Nicole to the authorities, which would be Natalie in the end, and um, she would flee and later on become the wife of White Up. Another thing that hints at the Michelle being a sister-wife thing is that Winona recognizes the perfume of the widows. It was called Chaladel or something. And she says it's the perfume her mother used to have. So it could be that they actually had the same scent because Michelle was their sister wife. So they kind of basically shared toiletries or however you would call that. But that it's a smell uniquely connected to being a sister wife. That's it for the basic Borgia theories. We will probably have more during the course of this season. You'll now hear a piece by Ilda about the purgatory forests or all the tree theories we actually have. Enjoy! Also, the scary forest around the compound where Wynonna found Willow, and I do not remember. 
In the next part of the podcast, we finally end up with Dr. Garota's G-spot. This is an hilarious part. Just keep in mind that um, the doctor is not actually a medical examiner, but she is very much fictional, but not less hilarious. So enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Emily Garrett, medical examiner of the Big City Institute of Forensic Sciences, and welcome to my G-spot. 
a series of audio recordings where I will use scientific knowledge, logic, and sound reasoning to dive deep into the mysterious events occurring in and around the Ghost River Triangle. I plan to explore every aspect, probe every angle of these mysterious events until they unravel and lay bare before me. So come, join me, and let's start today's topic. Massacre. Bloody, violent massacre. That's today's mysterious event. I am Dr. Emily Garrett, and this is my G-Spot. This massacre happened near the town of Purgatory in a nightclub establishment called Pussy Willows. Now, I am not able to provide details of the autopsies. To do so would be illegal, highly unethical, and in this case, impossible, because I was not allowed to examine any of the victims. My boss informed me he would be doing the autopsies, something about having prior experience in such matters, which I am highly skeptical about. In six and a half years, I haven't seen this man dissect anything more complicated than a bran muffin, and there are no records of prior massacres. Well, at least none that I could find. But not being part of the autopsies doesn't keep me from hearing things. Whispered conversations that should have been held in less public locations. Photographs that probably shouldn't have been left out. And from those, I have a completely fantastical, illogical conundrum of a crime scene for us to really sink our teeth into. Allow me to set the scene. Sixteen people were murdered, stabbed with a serrated blade. Just one blade is suggested. All apparently at the same time. Six were positioned in a symbolic way. That same symbol is also carved into the flesh of one or more of the other victims. I have very little expertise in symbology, so I leave that mystery for such independent research groups like the Wormhole Whisperers and Erpers. I want to focus all my attention on the logistics of just how this massacre could have happened. Let's start with the obvious. How do you murder 16 people at the same time? One option is to have them all grouped together and kill them with some mass killing weapon, such as gunfire, poison, or gas. But these people were stabbed. Much harder to do in a cluster. And from the photos, these individuals were not found in one location. Aside from the six that were staged, everyone else seemed to fall where they died, spread throughout Pussy Willows and... I think a few were even outside. Which brings us to the next scenario. Because the victims were spread out, how were they all stabbed at the same time? Were there 16 killers, each one with a victim, and they all managed to thrust their weapons simultaneously? I can't get five people to show up to a staff meeting on time, so I find it hard to reason that 16 killers could A, show up to the location on time, B, all have the exact same weapon, or C, perfectly insert said weapon into their victim with the same force and thrust so the wound patterns would be identical. Now, now we come to my next scenario. This one, I have tried to place myself in the position of planning and staging this massacre. <clears throat> I don't care how many people I kill. The number is quite irrelevant. It is the act that matters because the act is a statement, a warning. I pick this location 
because that is where my message will reach the audience I desire. The staging of the bodies gives my message that impact. So, okay, maybe the number matters to me a little. I need enough to be able to draw my symbol so my audience can know without a doubt this was for them. They cannot run or hide from me. I am all powerful and I will wield that power at my leisure. Whatever it is I want, I'm coming to get it. Once I approach the club, I paralyze everyone in and around it. Yes, I paralyze them. I don't want them moving around as I decide which ones to carve, which ones to stage, leaving the rest just to slaughter for being around. How do I paralyze them? Maybe I use a gas or a drug in the drinks. Once the decisions are made, the rest goes swiftly. Moving victim to victim, I execute the same efficient stabbing motion I have done many times before. Once they've all fallen to the ground, I take my chosen ones, put them in the symbol, and carve the symbol into the others. Then I wait until my message is received. Hmm. Now, this last scenario is the one I find most compelling, if still highly unlikely. I am not sure what paralytic drug would be capable of freezing people in place long enough to accomplish the massacre, but if the time of death and manner of death are all the same, it has to be something like that. I wish I could see the wound tracks, find out if there's debris or bruising on the bodies to indicate what kind of blade. Personally, I feel saying that it is a serrated blade is a bit too specific. The wound tracks internally and externally would have to show those serrations and jagged edges, something very difficult to achieve unless the victim is completely still. Yet another reason paralysis fits into my narrative. In most cases, we can at best say sharp object impact as many different tools and objects can have sharp or serrated edges. But my boss was very specific. He was very sure it was a serrated blade. Maybe he has seen wounds like this before. Huh. Strange. Well, I think that should conclude today's G-Spot. I hope this has left you intellectually sated. I know I enjoyed myself. Good day, and I hope you'll come again to the G-Spot. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It's something we really enjoy creating and we want to enjoy creating for the whole season. So it's good for us if you have any feedback to us, any theories we should cover or anything podcast wise you think we could do better or you already like. And please tell us. We know that the Urpas are very, very kind and we kind of depend on your feedback to improve what we are doing since we're all new to it we're looking forward to episode three or two it has been um, teased by emily a lot but she teases a lot of episodes but we're gonna see big changes and big changes usually mean big theories so we're gonna take a look at what happens next so stay tuned and we hope you tune in to our next episode with the purgatory wormholes <laughs>